statement. I think uh, Christian, non-Christian, you can agree with this statement. I think even uh, atheist would uh, agree with this uh, particular uh, statement, but we ought to love each other, right? Amen. Not real controversial, right? We ought to love uh, each other. We ought to treat uh, people with love, um, I mean, if I ask you, do you want your life, your relationships, your family to be marked by love, what are you going to say? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so Will does. <laughs> like, so to everybody else, do you want your life, your family, your relationships to be marked by hate, strife, anger, division? We know we're supposed to be loving we want people uh, to love us. But if that's so obvious, why is it so hard? I mean, why do I and you often struggle to love other people well? I mean, why am I not more of a loving husband sometimes? Why am I so selfish sometimes if I know I'm supposed to love other people? Why do I think more about myself than I do uh, other people? Why do I want my own way? Why do I want to do what's comfortable for me? Why is it that sometimes the ones that we love the most, we treat the worst? We ought to love each other. And, and, and that's a biblical statement. I mean, this series that we're doing, this is week four, in a nutshell, is God loves us, so we ought to love him, and we ought to love each other. But how do we actually love each other in the right way? How do we actually function as loving people? Like, if I could give you, uh, if, if I was doing an infomercial, and I, I could give you some kind of product or formula, 1999 money-back guarantee that would make you loving, would you take me up on it? Yes. If I could give you that for your spouse, would, would you take me up on it? <laughs> okay, well, I don't have anything for 1999 today. Um, but I've got something that's free, at least when it comes to money, although there might be a price to be paid in a way. Um, I want to try to teach us today how we can actually love other people, how we can live out this imperative, this command, this ought to. But it's not just this is not going to be a moralistic message at all. I mean, it's, it's like a lot of things. You say, you ought to do this. Go do this. I mean, that's real helpful, right? Uh, but that's not even the issue. In fact, I think that's part of the problem. Because what we're going to see in Scripture today, that us actually loving each other, us actually loving other people well, is not really a root issue. It's a fruit issue. And today, we're going to get to the root of the matter. And we're going to see a couple of great gospel truths. We're going to see the way that God works in our lives and what he does to set us free to love other people. Because if you're in Christ, you're free to love others. The question just becomes, then, 
what's blocking that? How do we overcome that? How do then we actually put that into practice? So that's what we're going to see today in the book of Galatians. So Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and remember, you want to be a loving person, right? Question is, are we going to actually be here's the word, we're going to be doers of the word, put into practice what God teaches us today. So he says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, let's start with a minute with this word, therefore, because we're kind of jumping into the middle, really not even the middle of Galatians. We're, we're jumping into the application part of Galatians. And so Paul, as he often does in his letters, has laid out all these great gospel truths, these great doctrinal themes. And then he says, therefore, and the therefore refers back to everything uh, that he has already said in, 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 what, in whatever the Letter is in Galatians in, in, in this case. And, and so uh, let's kind of use the, the therefore as a launching pad. And let me take two or three minutes and just kind of give you a quick overview of the book of Galatians. So we got a foundation to understand what he's saying to us in, in chapter five. So the main theme of the book of Galatians is justification, and the word justifies when God means for God to declare us righteous through Christ, a justification through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the point of the book. Maybe uh, the great summary of it is Galatians 2.16 that says, knowing that as man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, uh, we, we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, once you understand what the word justified means, and it means to be declared righteous, the rest of the wording of that verse is pretty simple and straightforward, isn't it? No flesh, nobody, no person is made right with God, is declared righteous through the works of the law, but it's only by faith in Jesus Christ. See, this is the issue that Paul was dealing with in Galatians. Is there, you know, he had planted the church. He had proclaimed the true gospel to them. Many of them, I'm sure, have been saved through faith in Christ alone. But there were some false teachers, often called Judaizers, who had come along who said that salvation was through Jesus and or Jesus plus keeping the Mosaic law, particularly that you had to be circumcised if you were a male. And, and so Paul is saying it's in Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, for the glory of God alone, according to scripture alone. And so here's the key difference, and this is so essential that we understand this today, is uh, the, the difference is Paul is saying is the word alone versus the word plus, the gospel is Christ alone. Religion, I mean, religions talk about Jesus. I mean, even, you know, pseudo-Christian religions. But it's Jesus plus. And what Paul is saying is that trusting in Jesus plus anything leaves you lost and dead in your sins. It's Christ alone. Now, for us, the issue is not circumcision. It may be Christ plus baptism, Christ plus good works, Christ plus uh, church membership, Christ plus, uh, you know, whatever. But the issue is, what he's saying here, and this is foundational to everything else, is that you are free 
Spiritually, you're free from the law, but you're also free from being controlled by sin when you're trusting Jesus alone. Now, that's good news, but it's challenging news. Here's the good news. The good news is that no matter who you are, where you've been, what you have done, if that you will admit that you're a sinner, if you will give up on your self-righteousness and self-effort and run to the cross and cast yourself upon Jesus for his grace and mercy, you can be forgiven of every sin, declared righteous, reconciled to God, become uh, an eternal uh, child of God. But here's the challenge. That challenges our pride, our self-sufficiency. We're incurably, insatiably religious because if we did something, even if Jesus had something to do with it, we can take credit for it. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is, is to be saved, we have to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. That not only are just we sinners, but we can't do anything about it and only he can and trust him and him alone. Are you trusting him and him alone for your salvation? Have you come to the end of yourself and fully given yourself to him, fully depending upon him, relying on his death, burial, and resurrection alone for your salvation. If not, he invites you today to humble yourself, confess your sins, place your faith in him, and be transformed by him. That's the message of Galatians. That's the message of Christianity. Galatians is Romans, in a nutshell, applied to a particular situation. So the outline of the book Chapters one and two, Paul's defending his apostolic authority, de- defending uh, you know, his, him as the messenger of the true gospel. Chapters three and four is doctrinal. He's, ex- he's explaining, defending the, the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. And then here in chapters five and six, he's getting the practical of how we live this out, how we live the Christian life of liberty in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, one other thing, and then we'll uh, go back to our text in Galatians chapter five. I think something, and, and you can use this in your personal Bible study, like when you read Galatians, you wanna understand Galatians. There's like two sets of contrasting connections through the book of Galatians. There's the gospel, which is the gospel of grace, received by faith, that results in freedom through the Holy Spirit, expressed in godly fruit, by loving others. That's how the gospel works itself out in our lives. Religion, though, is about the law in contrast with grace, works in contrast with faith, bondage in contrast with freedom, the flesh in contrast with the spirit, unrighteous deeds that are selfish in contrast with godly fruit and loving others. Which one characterizes your life? But you want to understand Galatians? Read the six chapters with those two contrasting connections in mind. That's how the gospel works itself out. It's how religion works itself out. So, back to verse one. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Kenneth Weist writes of this. He says, here are these Galatian Christians, free from the law, having been placed in the family of God as adult sons, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, who would enable them to act out their experience, uh, that, act out in their experience that maturity of Christian life in which they were placed. 
But what they were doing is now putting on the straight jacket of the law, cramping their experience, stultifying their actions, depriving themselves under rules made for children. You say, does this mean the law doesn't apply to our lives anymore? Well, God's moral law, God's commandments still do, but this is what he's saying. Paul made it clear in chapter three that the purpose of the law is not to save us, but the purpose of the law is to show us that we're sinners who can't save ourselves and to drive us to Christ. That's the purpose of the law. And so when Christians go back to the law uh, for sanctification, they're robbing themselves of the freedom and the power of the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so you can fall into the ditch on that side of the road of legalism. And remember, we're going to see how uh, we're working toward it. We're going to see how this relates to love. What does legalism do to love? You ever met a legalist? (laughs) I mean, some of the meanest people on planet Earth are legalists in churches. But we're also, we'll get to this uh, later on, we're going to see that you can fall into the ditch on the other side of the road, though of license or antinomianism of thinking, well, I can just live however I want to live now. And that, of course, quenches the spirit as well and is destructive. Both of those things, license and legalism, both lead to bondage. God calls us to live in the freedom of the gospel through the Holy Spirit that results in love. That's the, that's the point that he's going to make here. But now he's going to deal with this issue of circumcision And uh, as we think about circumcision, and and I'm assuming everybody knows what circumcision is. You don't need a medical explanation of it. Uh, But, you know, that's not going to apply the same way with us. I think probably most boys are circumcised now for hygienic reasons. This was a religious thing. So, again, maybe don't think Jesus plus circumcision as it relates to us. Think Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus whatever, uh, social justice, church membership, I- I- anything else. But uh, so Paul says to them here in verse 2, and understand, it's a conditional clause in the Greek. So it's hypothetical, it's a warning. He's not saying this had happened to them, but he uh, was warning them against what the false teachers were trying to do and trying to deceive them and lead them astray. And he's warning them against being taken captive by false teaching, being placed into bondage. But he says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. In other words, if you're adding to Jesus, he's going to be of no value to you. You're going to, even if you're saved and you fall into some kind of temporary deception, you're going to miss out on the benefits and blessings of being in Christ, or you're going to miss salvation uh, because of this. He's not saying here you can lose your salvation. And the Bible says we're sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. God knows and keeps uh, his own, but you can be led astray and miss out on the benefits of salvation for a period or a season in, in your life. He says, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And, and, and this goes with something that Paul had said so many times. And I want you to hear this. If you think you can save yourself or help Jesus save you, what he's saying here and in other places is the only way that can happen is for you to be perfect or to be perfected. See, the Bible doesn't teach us that good people go to heaven. The Bible teaches us that forgiven people go to heaven. 
Because he says, if you're trying to make it on your own, you're a debtor to keep the whole law. So that means you've got to be perfect. You always have to obey and everybody falls short. And that's why the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Once again, the law is there to drive us back to Christ, to show us that we fall short and we're hopeless apart from his grace and mercy. So are we trusting him alone? What else can we rely on? We can't rely on ourselves. This is what grace is. This is what he's done for us. He says, verse four, you've become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. In other words, you're not functioning in the sphere of grace anymore. But this is what true Christians do. Verse five says, we through the spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. What's our hope? What's our righteousness? It's Jesus Christ found by trusting him alone. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It's like, he's like, he's saying, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not in a spiritual sense. It, it doesn't accomplish anything either way, but what matters is faith, obviously in Christ alone in the context, working through love. Timothy George, in his great commentary on the book of Galatians, says we are justified by grace through faith, a faith that indeed is active in love, leading to holiness. You know, Ryan preached a couple of weeks ago about uh, losing our first love. You understand, part of what Paul is, is saying here, and we'll see this more explicitly a little bit later on, is the idea of us loving God is not something that we're to conjure up in self-effort. It's the work of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit transforming our heart and, and, and stirring, giving us affections and then stirring our affections uh, for, for God. And the way to stir our affections is to keep going back to the gospel and the cross and Christ alone uh, again and again and, and again. You see, religion is trying to force ourselves to do something, trying to conjure up something. It's based on outward effort with the wrong motive. But Paul says it's faith working through love. And then he says in verse seven, you ran well. And once again, just hang on, we're working towards uh, something here. You ran well. He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And uh, when he says, who hindered you, literally, it's a word picture of wh who, what cut you off in the race. It's like you're running a race and another runner jumps in and cuts you off. Maybe it looks something like this. Watch this little quick video clip. That's what Paul's saying to them. He's saying if you listen to this false teaching, if you start adding to Jesus, if you start adding to the gospel, that's what you're gonna look like spiritually. You're getting cut off. You're getting tripped up spiritually. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole, or sorry, verse eight, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little evil, a little false teaching is gonna spread and mess everything up. Like what do we say? A rotten apple spoils the whole barrel? That's, that's what he's saying. He says, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. You understand, 
the cross is not palatable to our natural minds, to our prideful hearts. So what do we do? We throw out works. But Paul says, God forbid, and in the next chapter, God forbid that I boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And then in verse 12, he says something that's one of the most blunt, maybe even offensive statements in all the Bible. It's, it's, it's actually kind of interesting that he's doing this in the context because we're about to, to get into the verses right after this where he very explicitly talks about love. And, and so I, I think, and, and you know, I don't know exactly where to draw the line with this and we can go too far with this, but um, you know, in, in our world today, we're a bunch of pansies. And uh, people get offended over everything, but sometimes the loving thing to do is to speak the truth, and it needs to be blunt, maybe even come across as harsh. Now, understand as we read this, and I try to explain it, and uh, I'll, I'll try to be somewhat delicate with it, but, um, you know, we can, I mean, obviously, we can say things with the wrong tone, we can go overboard. Sometimes my family accuses me of this. They say there's like two Jimmy tones. There's like regular Jimmy, angry Jimmy. So I, I, I got to watch that. But, uh, you know, as you read this, understand Paul's not being literal here. He's not telling them to hurt themselves uh, physically. He's just saying you're so obsessed with circumcision, I'm going to take it and turn it around and use it in my argument against you. He's literally making a play on words here. You're not being literal, but here's what he says. He says, I, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. And, and literally what he's saying is, okay, you want to uh, trumpet circumcision so much? Well, uh, don't just stop there. Don't just circumcise the foreskin. Just go all the way and emasculate yourselves and cut the whole thing off. I mean, that's what he's saying. And so, uh, again, what he is trying to say is stop trusting in anything other than Christ alone. Amen. Don't be led astray. It's Jesus alone. And I hope that was delicate enough. Maybe it wasn't. But, um, but he, he's saying, um, this is what you are spiritually doing to yourselves if you start adding to the gospel. You're mutilating yourself. You're emasculating yourself spiritually. I mean, I don't know how to be any more delicate than that and not tone down what he's saying. So again, are you trusting in Christ alone? But now, this is what we've been leading up to. Verse 13, this is how all of this then connects with love. <clears throat> He says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Remember verse one? Liberty, freedom. Stand firm, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ has set us free. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, 
And of course, this goes quoting from the Old Testament, quoted multiple times in the New Testament. We're going to look at another passage next week where it's quoted, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you, divide, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So this is the big idea then, very simply, what, as we put all of this together. We are set free by Jesus to love others. We are set free by Jesus to love others. In other words, if you're in Christ, you're free, but you're not free to go do whatever you want to do. You're free to love one another. But it's not something that just has to be conjured up. It's not something that we just ought to do. We ought to do it, but we can do it. We're empowered to do it. In a sense, it's natural, but it's supernatural. It's like naturally supernatural, supernaturally natural, as Adrian Rogers used to say, to love one another if we're walking in the freedom for which Christ has set us free. Now, we need to see what he's saying here is this love is outwardly expressed by serving others, by serving others. It's how, it's, it's how it comes out. It's how it's actually uh, expressed. Look again what he says. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You see, love is more than a feeling. In the words of the old DC talk song, love is a bar- verb. Love is an action. Love is expressed through sacrificial service to others. Uh, let's look at another passage that exemplifies this, that, that quotes this same verse from the Old Testament. Let's go to Luke chapter 10 for a minute. <clears throat> Familiar story of uh, the parable of the, uh, of the Good Samaritan. And so, you know, a guy comes to Jesus, a lawyer, says, you know, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus takes him back, asks him what's written in the law, what you're reading of it. And, and the man, he goes to the law, he quotes the Old Testament, you know, he says, you shall love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, strength. And then he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But then he asked the question, well, who is my neighbor? trying to justify himself. And so Jesus, to answer uh, this question in verse 30, told the story. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest, you know, religious leader, uh, came uh, down that road, and we saw him. He passed by on the other side. Now, think about it. He could have had some feelings of compassion. He could have prayed for him. Maybe he went back and blogged about loving the less fortunate or tweeted about social justice. But he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan... And the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. As he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. You know, this is a recurring theme in the New Testament, that if you want to have compassion, don't pray for it. Go and see, and that's how you get compassion. You want to have compassion for the lost? You want to have compassion for the hurting? You want to have compassion for people in Honduras? Go and see it. That's how God does a work in our hearts. But then notice the series of verbs here. He went to him. 
bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Love is a verb. Love is sacrificial service. Love is action, compassion in action. And so Jesus says, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him and to us, go and do likewise. We're set free to love others, but love is outwardly expressed through service. Timothy George, again, and you know, his commentary on Galatians is one of the best Bible commentaries I've ever used, and he says this. He says, as C.K. Barrett has rightly observed, the opposite of flesh is love. Love that looks away from the self and its wishes, even its real needs to the neighbor, and spends its resources on his needs. Isn't that what Jesus said in that story? Christian freedom is freedom to love and therefore freedom to serve. Now, now listen to this. This is brilliant and this is powerful. Quoting George again, I'm not saying I'm being brilliant. Uh, <clears throat> earlier in Galatians, Paul introduced the concepts of freedom and love. But this is the first place he brought them together in a single thought. Now think about that. That's exactly what he did in verse 13. And surprisingly, that which links freedom and love is the very thing Paul earlier said Christ has delivered us from, slavery. Because actually, the English word serve that, you, that we read there does not inadequately translate the Greek verb doulete, which, behind which stands the common Greek noun for slave, doulos. So literally what that saying is, is through love, be a slave to one another. He says, through love, Paul said, you should make yourselves slaves to one another. Listen, thus freedom and slavery are not simply mutually exclusive terms. They stand in the closest possible relationship to one another and can only be adequately defined in terms of object and goal. That which we are slave to and that which we are free for. See, the New Testament is very clear we're going to be a slave to something. It's just a question of what. But, but listen to this. this. This is the last paragraph from George. He says, The glorious good news of justification by faith is that Christ has delivered us from servile bondage to the law and from captivity to the cosmic forces of evil. But the freedom we have received is not a static thing, something to be saved and admired and stroked like Silas Marner, who was a famous miser, polishing his gold coins. No, true freedom is realized only in the slavery of love. Paul's admonition to mutual service is thus not a restriction on freedom, but actually the very means of its actualization. No one has expressed the paradox of Christian freedom more succinctly than Luther in his famous maxim. A Christian is free and independent in every respect, a bondservant to none. 
A Christian is a dutiful servant in every respect, owing a duty to everyone. We're set free from the bondage, from the slavery of sin to be a slave to each other in love. To esteem others higher than ourselves. To put others' needs ahead of our own. To bear one another's burdens. To sacrifice. You know, how do we do this? The most loving thing we can do is to share the gospel with somebody. We love others by using our spiritual gifts and serving in church, by serving in the community. Just by doing good, uh, taking advantage of the opportunities in front of us in our day-to-day lives, finding a need and meeting it. Being an encouragement to those who are hurting. Treating others the way we want to be treated. Unconditionally loving our spouse, not just being a taker, but being a giver in our, in our marriage, in our family. So we're set free by Jesus to love each other. The outward expression of that is service. But I want us to see again, it's not something we're trying to conjure up. This is not a religious effort and attempt to placate God. This is something that God puts on the inside of us through the gospel that can then work its way outward. See, because this is the last thing I want us to see in a few minutes we have left. And that is that this love is inwardly produced by being transformed through two things. Number one, salvation by the Son, experienced by grace alone through faith alone. In Galatians, Paul's already said in chapter one, verse four, that he gave himself for our sins. Chapter two, verse 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In chapter three, he talks about us being under a curse, but Christ in dying on the cross became a curse for us where once again, when we trust him alone, we can be forgiven and saved set free, and uh, transformed inwardly. And again, there's some of you here in this room, probably some of you online, that at this moment you don't need to worry about in your response so much the outward aspect of love. That's, a remember, a fruit issue. You need to get to the root. And the root is you need Jesus. You need to trust him alone And he invites you to do that. But understand that when we receive Christ, the Bible is very clear that we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And it's through the Holy Spirit, it's through sanctification by the Spirit, experienced by living under his control, that we can actually live this out. So, because here's the thing. If you're tracking with me at all, I hope you have this question right now. You ought to have this question right now. But just in case you don't have this question right now, I'm gonna give you this question right now. If I'm set free by the gospel to love and I believe the gospel and I know Jesus, let's go back to where we started. Why do I struggle or fail many times to actually love other people in the way that I should? Well, Paul has an answer for us. And the answer is, We're in a spiritual battle between the indwelling spirit 
in the flesh, our old nature, that still remains in us until we go to heaven and are glorified someday. And that's the reality that in between justification and glorification, there's this ongoing process and even battle of sanctification. And if we want to actually be a loving person, it comes when we allow the spirit to control us instead of the flesh controlling us. Look at what he says here. And this is really going to hit us where we live. You see, if we want to live differently, if we want our families, our marriages to be different, I'm absolutely convinced that the key to it is by living under the control of being filled with and walking in the Holy Spirit. I think that's what he's going to, to say to us here in these verses. Um, here, here's something I believe. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. But, you know, I talked about this 1999 guarantee earlier. If I could, for 1999, guarantee you that you'd have an awesome marriage for the rest of your life, you'd take that just like that. In fact, you'd, you'd pay me thousands of dollars for that. But, but Paul tells us, even in these verses right here, how to have a great marriage. He's like, I've read Galatians 5 before. What does it say about marriage? Well, just hang on for a second. See, here's the thing. I believe, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I don't believe we really have many relationship problems. I believe we have personal problems, sin issues that sabotage our marriages and other relationships. Look at what he says here. He says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. To walk in the spirit means to live under the control of the spirit on an ongoing basis. When we're living under the control of, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're not gonna fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's the key to overcoming temptation. It's, um, it's an internal change. It's not just willpower. Why? It says the flesh Lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Do you feel like there's a battle going on inside of you? If you don't, you need to get saved. If you do, that's a good sign that the Holy Spirit's there. But, but this is an ongoing battle. A scantily clad, attractive person uh, walks in front of you. You can't help but see him or her. The flesh says, look again. The spirit says, turn away. Um... You know, the, the flesh says, my spouse ought to give me everything I want. Spirit says, I need to minister to her, serve her, put her first. God blesses me with something or I'm able to accomplish something. The flesh says, look at me and tell everybody what you've done. The spirit says, give God glory. Somebody mistreats you. Flesh says, get back at them. Spirit says self-control, patience. Well, that's not easy. I mean, like, you know, I'm getting ready to preach this. Yesterday, I'm at the gym in the weight room, and uh, I did a set of bench presses and wanted to move to a different machine, and, and, and there's a guy uh, that's just sitting there on the, the bench, and he's just sitting there. He'd been sitting there for a few minutes, and you know, pray for my sanctification. One of, the, one of my pet peeves is when people are at the gym, but they're not actually working out at the gym. I just, I, I just don't get this. Um, and I don't, I don't get the point of it. And so I'm like, are you finished? And he's like, no, I got a, another set to do. I'm like, okay, so I go back and finish my other set. He's still sitting there. 
And I wanted to say, this is not your house. <laughs> you can sit somewhere else. That's the flesh. But I decided I'm just going to go to the other weight room and do the other things and come back because I always try. I don't want to say something out in public where I'm going to be embarrassed if somebody randomly shows up at church some Sunday. Um, I really try to live by that. It usually works, except sometimes with their insurance company, the computer, the automated thing, I've literally yelled at that before. I'm such a man of God, right? Um, you might too if you had air insurance. But anyway, uh, he says in verse 18, but if you are uh, led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So once again, it's not, the law is not going to set us free. It's the Spirit. Now, notice this. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, which means just fill in the blank. So if you're like, I'm doing pretty good with these, you got your own junk, you got your own sin to put in there. Saying the works of the flesh, what we do when we're in the flesh is these kind of sinful things. Now, let me ask you a simple question. How then can we build a good marriage in the flesh? If this is what comes out of the flesh, how are we going to be a good parent in the flesh? Because Lord knows, even if we're in the spirit as much as we can be, we're tempted to kill our children sometimes, right? <laughs> how are we going to build good relationships in the flesh? But then notice the contrast, verse 22. But the fruit, and there's an important distinction between works and fruit, and it goes back to those connections we made. Works is what we do. Fruit is what's produced in us. And the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits, the fruit, the result of being filled with, under the control of the Holy Spirit is, first of all, love. And it's not accidental that that's first in the list. That governs everything else, I think. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Now, why wouldn't you want that? Right? Once again, if I could just give you a magic formula, 1999, sell you the fruit of the Spirit, you'd take it in a heartbeat. But the question is, I mean, God's not charging us for it. Why wouldn't we just live that way? Once again, it's not a fruit issue. It's a root issue. And here, here's the challenge. Here's, here's the cost. Verse 24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You see, if we want to experience this, first of all, we have to be in Christ. We have to be saved. But then we have to be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, offer ourselves up as living sacrifices because we can't be filled with the Spirit if we're not empty of self. We have to die to ourselves by His grace and live in dependence upon and in obedience to the Holy Spirit, seeking God, being in His Word, uh, surrendering to Him, confessing our sins, and asking Him to fill us, control us, guide us, enable us, empower us by His Spirit, admitting that we can't do it ourselves.
So Christ purchased our freedom on the cross. It's a freedom to love. But we have to be trusting him alone and walking in his spirit to actually experience that. Are you trusting Christ alone? Are you willing to daily surrender, seek him, confess sin, ask him to fill you with his spirit so you can live this out? Think about how it would change things if we all did this. I mean, instead of Christians being in divorce court, the world would be coming to us and be like, what's the secret to your awesome marriages? How can I have a family like this? Instead of people saying, hey, why would I go to, want to go to church? People are just mean and fight and bicker there. They would be compelled to come in uh, by our love. How would our communities be different? How would our world be different? And, and once again, the issue is not we ought to love one another. The application is not go be more loving. The application is trust Jesus, be filled with the Spirit, and then it will come out of us because it's a, it's a root issue and not a fruit issue. If the root's right, the fruit will come. So what's the fruit of your life? And what do you need to do about it? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. <clears throat> and in a moment, we're actually gonna have, it's like a come forward kind of invitation after we pray. I'll be at the front, Preston will be at the front if you need to talk to somebody. If you need to talk to somebody about becoming a Christian. If you want to pray, we used to do this. We haven't done it in a while. We're just basically going to divide the altar here, the stage in half. And if you just want to be alone with you and God, you come to the right side, your right side of the stage. If you want somebody to come and pray with you, you come to the left side of the stage. If you need to be baptized, I don't know why, but I just felt like God prompted me and said, prepare the baptistry this week. If you receive Christ today, or if you have trusted him in the past, but you've never taken that first step of obedience and been baptized, you come, we got the stuff, we can baptize you this morning. So when Brett starts singing, we'll be here. The invitation's open to you, but even before that. There's some of you this morning that, this is the day you need to take that step of surrendering to Christ. To give up on your self-righteousness, your religious effort, to lay down your pride, to humble yourself and trust him alone. He invites you to do that. And right now, would you just ask him to forgive you? Here in the room, online, if you're online, if you've got questions, connect with their host. But just ask him to forgive you of your sins. Tell him you believe in him, that he's God's son, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead. And ask him to come and take control of your life. And understand the issue is there's not some formula, not some magic prayer. If you're trusting in him, relying on him, depending on him, believing in what he has done for you, you're saved. You're forgiven. You're made right with God. For those of us who are Christians, we're set free to love. How are we loving others? But once again, let's not go try to be more loving. Let's let the Holy Spirit have control. And let him produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love in us. 
So I just encourage you, if you're a Christian, whether you come here to the stage and pray, whether you do it in your seat, just to surrender to Christ afresh and anew, to ask him to convict you of sin in your life and confess those sins, to ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit, just to to take control of you, to empower you, to change you, to transform you, to make you who he wants you to be. So as Brett sings, if you want to come pray, you need to talk to one of us.